0: You can do everything right, you can give your all, you can commit no mistakes, and you can still fail. And it, it takes some pressure off of you. You know, you're no longer going through a list of things like, did I do that wrong? Should I have done this differently? You know, what about this thing?
1: This episode of Beyond Aporia originated in the Howenstein Center's webcast, Lunch and Learn with Gleaves, available at www gvsu.edu/hc. Welcome to the Hallenstein Center's online program, Lunch and Learn. I'm your host, Gleaves Whitney. Today's journey takes us into the mental health dimensions of leadership. Our guide is Cook Leadership Academy Fellow Lucretia Dunlap. Just a few weeks ago, Lou graduated from GVSU, earning her Bachelor of Science with a double major in Psychology and Sociology. During her time at GVSU, she demonstrated outstanding leadership on and off campus, so much so that she was the very first recipient of the Robert Henderson Leadership Award conferred by Grand Valley's Psychology Department. Through Lou's unique experience, we will discuss failure, resilience, and mental health in leadership. Thank you so much for joining me, Lou.
0: Thank you for having me. I think we're going to have a really great conversation.
1: I do too. And congratulations on your recent graduation. You sure picked an interesting time to earn your bachelor's degree.
0: Well, I feel like the time picked me.
1: Yeah, well put. You also, um, besides being a student recently, you also work at Pine Rest. Tell us what you do there.
0: Uh, So I'm a psych tech. I have worked the adult lockdown and the adult step-down unit. Uh, Being a psych tech, you have a lot of different responsibilities. You have to do physical management. If the residents have violent outburst behavior, you have to do charting. Um, You have to do medication passing. You have to lead group therapies. You have to cook and you have to clean. Uh, You have to do a lot of socializing with residents. In fact, that is a large part of the job is socializing because they don't see therapist that often they don't see clinical that often it is frontline staff that they're with for their entire day and so a lot of their socialization a lot of the behaviors that you model for them is coming from the psych techs.
1: well it's quite a diverse interesting job you have there and there's another dimension i want to introduce early so that people know who you are from the get-go Of this conversation, you're also interested in the military from a very early age. Tell us about
0: that. Yeah, so my father is a veteran, and for him, joining the military was this huge positive influence on his life. You know, it gave him these experiences and opportunities he would have never had otherwise. You know, it really gave him direction and focus in his life. And so growing up, I heard these very positive things about the military, and I grew to have a lot of respect for those who served. And so when I started getting interested in psychology, you know, I started to think, what do I want to do in psychology? And I, what population do I want to work with? And I realized, you know, I want to work with military populations. So that is really where my my interest has led me.
1: Very good, and boy, is it needed nowadays. It really is. Is psychology, you know, TBI and and post traumatic stress have sort of caught us up for what our veterans really go through. has really just excellent that you are interested in helping folks who have suffered from those things. So as you pull it all together, tell us about how your academic preparation, your work at Pine Rest, your experience with the military, all have helped you to uh, to really do something useful in the marketplace and very valuable in the marketplace. And what is your next step from here?
0: So I would say that, you know, being at GVSU, I got a lot of foundational knowledge about psychology. I learned a lot about the different perspectives of psychology because, you know, you have social psychology, you have evolution, psychology, you have cognitive psychology, the list goes on. And there are so many different things you can do in it. And so being at Grand Valley, I sort of learned, you know, what I was interested in and sort of narrowed my focus. You know, working at, you know, Pine Rest a mental health facility, you know, gave me a lot of hands-on experience and made me understand more the reality of mental health work you know, because it's not like on TV. It's not like you're reading it from a book. In reality, it's very different. And so I, it gave me a lot more experience and knowledge of what I was, you know, preparing to do. It sort of got my feet wet and got me to realize, you know, I can do this. You know, I can work in this field and I do still love it. You know, and so it just gave me a a lot of direction and made me, you know, gave me the tools I needed to succeed and continue on. Um, So my future goal is to get a PhD in clinical psychology. And so all of this, you know, being really involved in my psych department at Grand Valley through my student organizations, you know, being involved in research, taking my classes, working in a mental health facility, it all gave me all the tools and experiences I need to continue on to the next part of that.
1: And to get there, Lou, I mean, you were a double major, president of several clubs on campus, you maintained a full time job and you're this high achieving student. This is all a lot to manage. How did you juggle all these competing responsibilities and stay on top of everything?
0: Yes, it was a lot. Um, so I think there were two things that were really helpful. One was being willing to sacrifice certain things in my life, you know, saying, which do I care about more taking another lab position and having that on my CV and getting that experience or, you know, having free fun time to, you know, go out and do things, which is going to matter more to me in the long run and just making those judgment calls and deciding, you know, these are the things I want to focus on in my life and focusing on that. The other aspect I think was just having a lot of time management skills and being self-motivated. You know, putting things in my calendar, making to-do lists. Um, And what was really important was setting deadlines. Even when projects didn't have firm deadlines put in them, I would make them anyway. Because it's very easy to say, oh, this doesn't have a set deadline. I can push it off for another day. But the problem with that is then you keep pushing things off, and it builds up and builds up, and becomes overwhelming, and you don't even know where to start. But if you chip at your responsibilities a little bit every single day, you know, it it becomes a lot more manageable. So just having that that ability to be very focused and also to set these firm goals for yourself.
1: Sounds like what my generation used to call sort of a type A, where there's a lot you can do. And, you know, if you want something done, you give it to a busy person. I'm curious, how do you balance that with recharging your battery? I mean, what what do you do to recharge when you have all these things you're doing?
0: Well, it is a matter of you set these guidelines in these deadlines for yourself. And then you have these things you build in these days of this will be my break day. So I, I still do this. I have my schedule right now because I'm working a lot right now and I have this day I'm taking off. I'm not doing anything with anything else. I'm just relaxing this day. And so you build in these, these break days for yourself to just recharge and relax and take self care days.
1: And we're going into the Memorial Day weekend, I trust that you're going to be relaxing a little bit?
0: Yes, I am not working Memorial Day, so there's that.
1: Well, Lou, in your senior year, in addition to all the other things you were doing, you decided to apply to 13 PhD programs, adding to your already full schedule. Can you tell us what that process is like?
0: So when people say, you know, applying to a school, they think, oh, you just fill out some information and you hit a submit button it is a lot more work than that. And I, I guess when I first decided to, I didn't realize how much time and energy would take. And so I had to kind of reassess and say, okay, I do not have the time and energy to do all the things I'm already doing and this as well. And this is really important to me. So I need to decide what I can afford to put off and to put on hold, like, is there a research project that I can say, I'm going to work on this a month later? Um, And also learning to delegate, which it's very hard for me to know my limits and to say, okay, I have met my limits and now I need to push off something on someone else. That is very difficult for me, but I think it is harder to do something and not give a hundred percent. You know, I would be more disappointed in myself if I did that than if I did a task in gave it to someone else. So I had some incredible officers in my student organizations that really stepped up and I was able to delegate some more duties to them and they really were great and supportive in that and I'm so appreciative. And I also had some mentors that I was doing research with that were very understanding that I was applying to grad school programs at the time and might not be able to meet certain deadlines. They were very great in that respect. And so it was just really being self-aware and saying, okay, I can't do all of this, and something's got to give, and it better not be me.
1: <laughs> well, you've been very open about what ended up happening, and, and tell us what it was like, Lou, you, you're such a high-achieving person in so many areas of life, but it was devastating, because you're not accepted to, these, uh, to any of these 13 PhD programs that were part of your plan, you know, these are the next steps for you. How did that go down for you?
0: Yeah, so I did a phone interview with one school, and then I did in-person interviews with five other schools. And these were like three-day-long interview events, you know. and I was giving my all to it, and I was doing everything I could. And then for an entire month, it was just rejection letter after rejection letter, and it, it crushed me. And I felt like I did everything I possibly could, and it wasn't enough. Did I make a mistake? You know, am I not suited for a Ph.D. program? And it would have been very easy to stay in that mindset and to wallow in that rejection. Um, But I didn't want to, and I wanted to move past that. So there were certain steps that I took to help me be productive in this rejection. The first is realizing that failure doesn't define you. You know, this is one moment in your life, and you have a series of other moments, some highly successful, That came before this. Um, So, in this case, what is really useful is to have an accomplishment box. I've also heard people call it your greatest hits or the success newsreel that plays in your head. So, when you get a rejection or you fail at something, you just sort of recall all these other moments where you tried something and you succeeded at it. You know, that award you got, that time a professor complimented you on a paper, you know, that time your manager pulled you aside and told you you were doing a really good job. You just replay these moments in your head and say, okay, I failed at this thing, but all these other things I've done, I've done well, and ahead of me in my future, I'm going to do well in a lot of other things too. And so and just come to that realization, yeah.
1: And it sounds as if you are going to apply because you do want to get your PhD. Yes.
0: How I much try, gonna, I'm going to try again.
1: How much time are you going to give yourself before you reapply? You think? So...
0: I'm gonna apply for the next cycle. So I'm gonna apply for the Fall 2021 year. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, there were some other steps that also helped me. You know, um, not just realizing that failure doesn't define you, also realizing that there's also an element of luck involved. This can be very scary for people to consider and confront that they might not be in charge of their future, they might not have control over that. You know, it's a lot easier to say that I should have done this in that interview, and that's why I didn't get the job, because then you can change that thing, and then for the next job interviewer, you can do that, and maybe you'll get the job. It's a lot harder to say maybe the interviewer was hungry that day, and they were unhappy because they were hungry, and that colored their perception of me as a negative way, because you can't control that. You can't do anything about that. And so for some people it's kind of scary to consider that there's a lot of chance involved in this. But I think it can be actually very relieving because you can do everything right, you can give your all, you can commit no mistakes, and you can still fail. And it it takes some pressure off of you. You know, you're no longer going through a list of things like, did I do that wrong? Should I have done this differently? You know, what about this thing? Sometimes it's just it's not about you at all. And learning to accept that is kind of freeing because you can say, okay, I did my best that time. I didn't get it, but I'm gonna do my best again this time and maybe it will be different. Um, There's also an element of figuring out your next steps. For me, that was very helpful because I had a lot of people in my life that were supportive and saying, okay, well, what are you gonna do now? And it helped me kind of think about and focus on where am I gonna go from here? And you know, I still wanted to apply. You know, I did a a reassessment. I'm like, do I still think that I can do a grad program? You know, do I still want this? And yes, I did. So I was like, okay, how do I get there? You know, how can I improve my application? How can I maybe practice more interviewing skills? You know, what can I do to do better on this? And that it changes your perspective a little because when you're in that rejected place, you're thinking this is the end of my journey you know i tried my best and it failed and this is it end of the story but coming up with next steps kind of reframes it to this is not the end of my journey this is a speed bump maybe the process is not going to be as linear as i hoped and planned it would be you know maybe it's going to take a little longer maybe i'm going to have to do some different things than i planned but i'm still going to get to the same end destination and so just reframing it that way is very helpful And it was great that I had so many people who were willing
1: to help me with that. We know you and your generation, at least the people in your generation that I'm exposed to day in and day out, you all are in the Cook Leadership Academy. You're candidates or you're recent graduates. You're now fellow Mm -hmm. of your generation. I am encouraged. But I do wonder, I worry sometimes that you all are so pre-programmed to succeed and your lives have been so scheduled that it just, you go into these things with a lot of high expectations. It's very stressful. So you're not alone in this, are you? It's, it's really very much part of your generation to be programmed, to think the way you do at this high achieving level. Am I correct in that?
0: Um, I think it depends who you speak to. I do think that a lot of my peers, they do feel a lot of pressure to get to whatever end goal they have but I'm not sure that's something that's new for this generation. I think that every generation has certain expectations, certain milestones that they're supposed to achieve at a certain age. And with each generation, those milestones change.
1: Okay, good answer. So tell us about the importance along the way of mentors. I know you've had a couple of wonderful mentors while you've been with us at the Cook Leadership Academy. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that experience.
0: Yeah. So, I had my Cook Leadership Academy mentor who was Stephen, and he was amazing because he was so emotionally supportive for me. You know, I knew that anytime that I was struggling with something, I could sort of talk to him and get a, a different perspective. And that was also really helpful in that because he had that outsider perspective, he kind of narrowed in on things that I needed to work on and say, okay, I think you're focusing too much on this. You should also give some time to this. Um, he was also a really big advocate for my self-care, <laughs> um, was really helpful in that respect. I also had an incredible mentor in the psych department, Dr. Galen, and he was with me every step of the way in my grad school process. He looked over my personal statements. He set up a mock interview for me. You know, He looked over my school choices. He would debrief with me after all of my interviews and say, okay, what did you do right? What did you do wrong? And when I was rejected, when I got my final rejection and I had to go to him and tell him, yeah, didn't happen, you know, I was a little nervous because I didn't want to let him down. But he was so incredible about it. You know, he said, I know so many psychologists who had to go for a second cycle or even a third cycle, you know, this happens you know, what are we going to do to prepare for the next one? And so he was already thinking ahead. He was not focusing on my rejections. He was saying, okay, next step. And so that was just, that was so helpful to me.
1: Um, That's wonderful. Uh, We're really fortunate at Grand Valley and in this community to have some excellent mentors. And I'm so glad that you were able to take advantage of that. And of course the secret that we mentors know is that we actually get more out of the relationship than you do because you all recharge our batteries. Well, Lou, one of your strengths as a leader is that you are authentic and you allow yourself to show your vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And you want to help break the stigma around mental health and share your raw truth. Would you mind sharing with our audience your experience of struggling with depression while being a leader?
0: Yeah. So. We have come very far in destigmatizing mental health issues, but we still have a lot of progress to make. And it is especially hard being a leader and struggling because there's this expectation that you portray this image that is very strong and capable and confident. And you feel like you're not allowed to have weaknesses or to struggle. And it makes you feel very isolated and alone because who are you supposed to lean on if you can't talk about these things? You know, I had various points in my academic career where I felt very low and I lacked motivation. I lacked self-esteem. You know, I logically knew that I was doing fine, but I felt like I was letting myself down, that I wasn't meeting expectations of others or myself. And some of the hardest times for me was when I would lead a presentation or I would lead an event. And at the end of it, people would come up to me and compliment me. And, and they would say all these things to me that I wasn't feeling. And it felt, it felt like I was fooling people, like it was very disingenuous. And, I mean, the, the things that I've been talking about, you know, delegating, having an accomplishment box, you know, having mentors you can trust and talk to. These are all things that helped me to move past this and succeed. But if I didn't have those things, would I have been as successful as I've been? You know, I wish there were just more avenues for leaders to be vulnerable. And to talk about these
1: things? Well, while we're talking about, you know, the um, sort of, you didn't use the word exactly, but I think a lot of us at various times in our lives have had imposter syndrome. We've mm-hmm. felt that we weren't up for the task. We, we had more negative feelings about ourselves and actually people around us were having, but that's what we did to ourselves. Let's talk now just a little bit about negativity bias. Mm -hmm. It affects so many people, probably virtually everybody, according to the research, it's a whole lot of people. It can be so destructive, uh, negativity bias, especially, I've been thinking a lot about that in the current crisis, this Mm -hmm. pandemic economic depression we're in in some states. Please define negativity bias for us and tell us what are some of the techniques you're familiar with that help people cope with negativity bias.
0: Yeah, so negativity bias is the tendency for negative information, negative stimuli to be more salient to us than positive or even neutral stimuli and information. Um, so I'm sure you've all heard that you should sandwich a criticism between two compliments. Because insults, criticisms are more attention-grabbing to us, are more memorable, um, that you, you spend more time thinking about negative events. I mean, I'm sure you've laid in bed at some point thinking about something stupid you said or you know, something awful that happened, a lot more than good things that have happened or things that you've said. You know? And also, people find negative news you know, more attention-grabbing than positive ones, and they even find it more truthful than positive news. And um, this also is a large part of how information spreads. Um, The the thought behind it is that this is actually an adaptive evolutionary function, that being more aware of negative things in our surrounding, you know, makes us better prepared for things like predators. But it's not so helpful in situations like these, where, you know, you feel like you're surrounded by all this negative news. You know, all your friends are saying these very negative things, your social media is all negative. It makes you feel like things are very grim. And so it can be very difficult to sort of combat that way of thinking. But there are some techniques that do help with this. Uh, One of the best ones is cognitive restructuring. So that is identifying your maladaptive thoughts and then reframing them. Uh, So one of these is evidence gathering. So uh, for example, say you have social anxiety and your best friend invited you to his birthday party, and you are thinking, I'm I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna say something awful, everyone is gonna laugh at me, they're gonna hate me, you know, I am gonna come away from this event feeling awful. Okay, what evidence do you have for this? Have you ever gone to an event and had everyone hate you at it and laugh at you? You know, you, you pick apart these negative thoughts and say, okay, this is what I'm thinking, but what is the reality? this kind of goes hand in hand with another technique which is best case worst case and most likely scenario you first look at the best case scenario what is the absolute best thing that could happen you know i go to this party everyone loves me i am hilarious i make tons of new friends okay that would be great but probably not likely okay worst case scenario we've already covered that everyone hates you you say awful things you know not very likely given the evidence we've gathered so what is likely to happen here? Well, maybe you go to this event and you're a little awkward because you're not used to parties and you're not very social. But is anyone going to really care that there's an awkward person at a party? Probably not. And your friend is probably going to be really happy you came to this party. You know, he invited you for a reason. So you're probably going to be a little uncomfortable. And you're going to stay an hour or two. Then you're going to go home. That's not a great time, but it's doable. So it's just, it's breaking apart these worst case scenarios that our minds go to and saying okay but that's probably not what's going to happen and it's also preparing you for every eventuality saying here's the absolute best thing that could happen here's the worst thing here's the most likely and it really prepares you to have a response to all those situations and to really think it through and also reality is usually a lot more boring than we make it out in our head (laughs) like oh everything is gonna be awful it's all gonna go terrible. You know, I'm going to go to this event and do all these different things that are going to be bad. Probably not. <laughs> and, and so it just it helps you feel more comfortable with it and also pick it through a little more.
1: Very good. Well, Lou, we have viewers who are queued up to ask some questions, so let's bring them into our conversation. Uh, Winston Elliott, who was my first guest back in March on Lunch and Learn. He uh, watches these shows uh, avidly and he's a guy who's very interested in both leadership and the books and the conversations we have that inform leadership. He would like to know what are some of the most influential books in your leadership journey? Thank you, Winston, for that question.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like not so much leadership, but more, um, psych books that I've read, and honestly, my capstone psych class was probably one of the best classes that I've had for psych because our professor Dr. Baudel, he assigned all these really influential and important psych books. Um, like he had us read Freud, he had us read B.F. Skinner, and just reading these these really foundational thinkers in the psych field, it made me think differently about psychology and also sort of expanded my understanding of the field, you know, where it began, and the different paths that has taken since then, and it gave me a better perspective, you know, looking back from where we've come from and where we are now, and also seeing that some of these original thoughts, you know, that Freud was coming up with, that Skinner was coming up with, that these, these influential um, people in the science were coming up with, they are, still have some validity even today. And so it just it gave me sort of a, a longer perspective on you know the fields that I'm in and interested in.
1: So. Oh very good. We have a viewer who asks, with your interest in serving our military population, what are your thoughts about the overuse of medications in uh, treating post-traumatic stress? It's a great so, question.
0: So that is going in the VA route, correct. So um, I want to be a military psychologist which is less handling, Um, That aspect of of trauma, Um, severe psychopathologies, they get honorably discharged and sent to the VA. Um, So that's not so much the area I want to focus on, but I do think there are a lot of problems with the VA system right now. Um, And it's not just um, over-medication. I think that over-medication has been a problem in all areas, not just military or PTSD. Um, I see that in my, my job all the time, I mean, I will do medication passes that are seven pills for one person for one shift, and they are really going to therapy. And it's not my job particularly that it's a problem, it's the mental health system as a whole. We've gotten into this mindset that, oh, this person has this diagnosis, let's just give them medication. Well, this medication has side effects, so we need to give them a medication for those side effects. Well, this medication for side effects also has side effects. And it gets into this, this vicious cycle where all of a sudden you're over-medicating this problem and not talking about you know, the reasons why this is happening, you know, what other solutions can we have, you know talk therapy, you know, other therapeutic techniques that we can use for this. And I feel that it's more of a problem, not with the military or the VA or PTSD particularly, but in our culture as a whole, that we want this quick and easy solution to problems that we want to just pop a pill and all the problems go away. And psych problems are not that simple.
1: No, they're not. We have a viewer who's asking you to expand on this idea that psychological research can influence your understanding and practice of leadership. Do you want to dilate on that just a little bit more, please? Thank you for that question. Um, Yeah.
0: So there are so many different areas of psych research that can influence your leadership for example today i was talking about negativity bias and that is uh from psych research you know various psych research and it gives you this understanding of people Um, a lot of social psychology research is actually really helpful in leadership because you learn not just how people do things but why they do things you learn the root cause of their actions you know one of the incredible books that i have read in my um, site course is predisposed, which is talking about um, the differences between Democrats and Republicans, and it was talking about some of the psychological underlining themes, and it was it was so interesting because often we think about them as choices, and that book was arguing from a psychological perspective that it's some evolutionary basis to our political affiliation, and it was so interesting, and I mean there were some areas in the book that I disagreed with, but it was a different perspective. And it made me think about people differently. And so there are all these different psych research and psych books out there that can give you this greater understanding of people. And the, the more you understand people, the more you empathize with them, the more you're thinking about different ways they got to where they are, the better the leader you become.
1: Another viewer asks about the idea of wisdom in your field in psychology and the sociology you have studied is wisdom taught is it a goal and how does wisdom differ from say psychological health
0: are you talking about the difference between wisdom and intelligence <laughs> um
1: i think if, according to the viewer i i think they just want your perception of it
0: okay i think that the psych field is very big on empirical, that is, evidence-based methods. And so it is very much about facts and, you know, does this treatment work? Why does it work? Um, You know, this thing, we debunked it, you know, those sorts of very factual things. But I do think there is an element of psychology that is not quite as rigid and is more to do with your empathetic, connection with people. And there is that aspect that I think does sort of connect with wisdom and some more like people skills. You know, they have actually found that there's a lot of evidence that, you know, your success in therapy is not just based on therapeutic technique, but your connection with your therapist. And these are not skills that I feel like can be really taught through classes, um, but more through practicums and also your own passion and interest in this field. And so I think that sort of connects to to what this person is talking about.
1: I think that's a very wise answer. (laughs) Lucretia, you decided, in addition to all the other things you're doing, this questioner wants to know why you decided to apply for and become a candidate in the Cook Leadership Academy. And I would just, on a personal note, I guess, And for Grace Tummel and others of us who've been associated with the academy, uh, how did it help you mature as a leader?
0: Yeah, definitely. So, I think you know, before I was talking, how it can be kind of isolating to be a leader. And the greatest strength I think that the Cook Leadership Academy has is it's this cohort of people who have had you know different experiences, different perspectives, you know, but they all ended up in leadership positions, and so you have this ability to relate to them and say, okay, we kind of ended up in the same place, but you have a completely different perspective from me. And so you can, you can learn from these people who are similar to you in a lot of ways, but also different in other ways. And so it, being part of the Cook Leadership Academy, it made me aware of different leadership types and you know different ways to lead. And I, I think it was just very helpful in that respect.
1: Good. This is an interesting question from a viewer. Did you think when you were going through the failure of being rejected by all of those PhD programs, did you think that maybe there was a different path or a different vocation for you? And how do you figure out whether this is a bump in the road or truly a barrier to the, the road you're down going down and you need to change roads?
0: Yes. Good question. So, yes, that is actually an excellent question. And, I definitely considered, you know, other careers, other graduate programs. I considered going, because I'm double major, I said, okay, well, I could do something with my sociology degree. And, you know, I laid out all these different things that I could do, you know, master's programs instead of PhD programs. Should I do PsyD instead of PhD? You know, I was thinking all these different things. And I even thought, you know, should I try and work and then come back and then apply to programs, you know, get some some money saved up and get some experience. Maybe that should be the path I should go. And I carefully considered every one of these options. And I just felt that I could not give up my dream of going to a PhD program, clinical psychology. And that for me was the sticker that made me feel like I can kind of picture myself in these other, you know, options, but it doesn't fill me with that that glow, that, that excitement that this option does. And that was, for me, what kind of urged me, you know, you want to continue on this path. You know, it might be harder than you expected, but you still want it enough to keep working for it. And I think that was really what was essential there.
1: That inner resilience, that strength. That's right. And all leaders need that. And all good students need that as well. Well, Winston writes back. I want to share a comment that he made. You know, he's the one who asked the first question, and he's written a note uh, for us both, I think. He says, quote, we can be wise, fully human, and broken. To accept this is the wisdom of understanding the human condition. Human condition is not just uh, the art or the science of being human, but also the art of being human. Close quote.
0: That was really beautiful, Winston. (laughs) I think so, too. That was definitely definitely a great quote.
1: (laughs) Definitely a great quote. Okay, is is there anything else, Lou, that you would like to mention that we haven't covered?
0: Not that I can think of. Is there anything that you or any of the viewers would like to ask? Allie, do we have... have...
1: Allie, do we have any chat or any other questions coming in? Let me uh, check our question box one more time. Um, oh, here's a, here's a new question that came up. We often discuss the role of leadership. How do we understand the duty of followership?
0: What, oh, what's our okay. duty as well, followers? Yeah. So from the perspective of a leader, you know, what are the duties of followers? Um, Well, for me, being, you know, a president of two different organizations, you know, there's leadership in that way, and, you know, interacting with people who are followers, I don't particularly like that word, I'm going to say my fellow officers, Um, and for me, I feel like officer duties often sort of intersect with leadership duties, because there's a lot of give and take, there's a lot of trust, there's a lot of open communication, you know, the followers, you know, they're expecting certain things of their leader just as you're expecting certain things of them. And if both of you are fulfilling that sort of social co- contract, you know, me as a president, I'm organizing these events appropriately, I'm budgeting the money correctly, you know, I'm expecting, you know, this person, this officer to, you know, make sure that the event gets publicized appropriately. If we're both fulfilling our ends of the deal, everything runs smoothly, everyone is happy. So I think that there's just expectations on both sides that both people need to fill. And so that's sort of a balance of both of those.
1: Thank you very much, Lucretia Dunlap, for your wisdom, for sharing your passion for psychology and sociology, and for showing us how growth comes from failure leavened by resilience. Thanks also to our viewers whom I invite to zoom in or join us on Facebook, or at this same time, Tuesday, May 26th, when my guest will be Hohenstein Center favorite, award-winning author Ron White. Ron will tell us what the presidents teach us about leadership in tumultuous times, certainly an apt topic today, as well as give us a sneak preview of his recently completed manuscript on Abraham Lincoln, a book that will be published next May. Till Tuesday at 1 p.m., stay tuned and stay well. Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Hauenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. The theme music was composed by Andrew Whitney. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's legacy of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the pressing issues that Americans face. To learn more about the Hauenstein Center, please visit us at www.gvsu edu/hC you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter thanks for listening this is gleaves Whitney